Good morning, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and today we're going to continue our discussion in Revelation chapter 21. So we're starting in verse 9, and I've gotten a little bit of feedback from the first eight verses, and a lot of people saying, wow, Kevin, uh, we've always thought of this as something to come in the future, and you're saying that this was all accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you've tied this together with so many symbols that we already understood from the New Testament. It's hard to argue with that, but it's going to take us a while to get our brains around this. <clears throat> and I've, I've reflected on that uh, through the evening last night and through the day today, that it is a different um, paradigm than what we were taught as kids. Uh, it's different than what's been taught in the church in my lifetime, <clears throat> certainly. I was born in the 60s, and by the 70s, uh, the kind of Hal Lindsey perspective on Revelation dominated uh, the culture. The Thief in the Night movies dominated the culture of those days. And then when those died out, um, the left behind stuff came along. Books and then movies. And so it, it was the perspective of LaHaye and Jenkins, which was the same dispensational perspective of Hal Lindsey, which was the dispensational view that that started in the late 1800s that we talked about several episodes ago. So in my lifetime, the church has really uh, been drawn to that dispensationalist perspective based on the mysticism of the 1800s, not really based on anything scriptural. So they took their their dispensationalistic mysticism and they bent the scripture to fit their their story their narrative but now you begin to see their narrative breaks down when you start to unravel it it just all falls apart because it was based on an idea that they wanted to prove, not based on what the scripture says. So as we go through and we take the scripture at what it says, I know it seems kind of revolutionary, but these are not new ideas. These are the ideas that existed before 200 years ago, not even a whole 200 years ago. Um, These are the ideas that, that the church held for centuries before people started to muck it up. Or at least they're those ideas as best as I understand them. So um, I understand it's kind of a new paradigm. I understand that it takes a little while to get used to it. I already see that some people are listening to the last five or six episodes multiple times. I, I like that. If you have questions, let me know. If you have a perspective, let me know. Um, I'm pretty easy to find on social media. Um, Or you can just email me anytime at 
revelationpowerbook at gmail.com. And uh, I get emailed there all the time about the book. And so I'm happy to either respond there or uh, just come into the next podcasting show and, and answer questions this way. So, Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels, who had held one of the bowls of the seven last plagues, said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in a prophetic trance to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It beamed with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The city had a thick, high wall with twelve gates. Twelve angels were at the gates, and the gates were inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on each was the name of one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel speaking with me had a golden measuring rod with which to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out with four equal sides as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the tool and found it to be 1,400 miles in length and width. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 200 feet thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, clear like glass. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh yellow topaz, the eighth beryl, the ninth blue topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve gigantic pearls, each individual gate made from a single pearl. The main city of the, the main square of the city was pure gold, like transparent crystal. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of sun or moon to illuminate it, for the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp, its light, is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The gates of the city will never close by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring the glory and honor of all nations to it, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. That is, no person who does what is shameful or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life may enter. So, this is another one of those paradigm-busting kind of sections. And it's long textually, but the points are, are salient, they're meaningful, and they're few. His host is one of the seven angels who'd been carrying one of the bowls of the seven plagues of the wrath of God. And he says, come with me and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Clue number one right there. Come with me and I will show you the bride, the wife 
of the Lamb, who is constantly portrayed through the New Testament as the bride of the Lamb. The church. The church is consistently called the bride of the Lamb. Now, any Roman who intercepted this letter would not know that. But any New Testament Christian who'd been around the church for very long at all, and remember at this point, Jesus has been dead for over 60 years. So the church has a history by this time, and anyone who's been in that history has encountered by this time some of the writings of Paul, some of his use of the term bride of the lamb for the church. They understand the stories and the parables of Jesus that have been passed on through the apostles that he called the church his bride and 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 drew parallels between his return to get his bride and the marriage relationship. So it's very well known to them that the church is the bride, but the Romans wouldn't know that. So Right here in verse 9, he comes right up front and says, The angel said, Come, I'll show you the bride of the Lamb. I'll show you the church. There's no question that that's what he's going to show him. So he goes with him in a prophetic trance to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now what's he going to show him? The bride of the Lamb. What does he show him? The holy city, Jerusalem. Now we're back to my point in the last segment. Jesus walked through Jerusalem. His disciples said, whoa, look at these buildings. Jesus said, you impressed by this? You could tear it all down. I could rebuild it in three days. He's talking about his church. He's talking about his new kingdom. And and that kingdom doesn't need a temple because God doesn't live in a building anymore. It doesn't need an ark of the covenant. It doesn't need a holy of holies. It doesn't need a holiest of holies because God will live in the hearts of people. I'm going to show you the bride of the lamb. Oh, look, there's the city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. God made it possible for you and I who were never Jewish, who were never part of his chosen people to be, the Bible says, grafted in to be made a part of of his chosen people, to be the, the figurative Jerusalem, the place of God's dwelling. That city beamed with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of every precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. I'm a rock collector. I have been since I was a little kid. My dad was a science teacher, and when we went on vacation, we picked up rocks. (laughs) And so I have a fairly extensive rock collection, and my children now have extensive rock collections. Jasper is not clear. You can find red jasper is probably the most common. Yellow jasper is probably almost just as common. Uh, There are more rare colors of jasper, like green, but jasper is is solid, it's it's opaque, light doesn't come through it, it looks kind of waxy, it polishes up really, really pretty, but it's not clear, it's not crystal. And scholars believe that the word jasper 
in in the New Testament probably refers to diamonds. That would make absolute sense, not only here, but everywhere that the word jasper is used in the book of Revelation, it's clear as glass, clear as crystal. So he's probably saying that the brilliance of the church is like a diamond. Makes a lot of sense. The city had a thick high wall with 12 gates. Now look how the language starts with the covenant to Israel. It starts with 12 tribes, 12 gates, 12 angels are at the gates, and the gates were inscribed, each with the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the old covenant is still good. It was hard to keep. Uh, if, If God didn't extend grace to the people under that covenant, a whole bunch of them wouldn't make it to be called the people of God, and yet Even when they failed him, he continued to call them his people. Perhaps at the cross, the sacrifice of Christ paid the price for their sin too. The Bible says that Jesus died once and for all. Not for all who would come later, but for all. And so perhaps I'm willing to allow that God fulfilled the covenant to Israel on the cross and extended them the grace to enjoy that covenant even when they were unworthy because they set out to be his people. It's no different than what he does for me and for you. Are we capable of living perfect lives? We're not. We're just not. There are times we're going to need God's grace. And and for most of us, there are times that we need an immense amount of God's grace. He will have to forgive us of some horrible things or we won't have a prayer of ever seeing heaven. We're no different. I don't know why we divide ourselves up as though our belief in Jesus Christ as the New Testament Savior makes us better than those who would look forward to an Old Testament Messiah. Did they recognize him? Not by and large, no. But most of our world doesn't recognize him as the New Testament Savior either. The world hasn't changed. People haven't changed. So here is the New Jerusalem, the church, the the community of God's people. And the way in, right, the gate, the way in is labeled with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel because the old covenant was the way in. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, okay? The way in is through the old covenant to Israel. But the foundation, that which holds it all up, on each of those foundation stones was the name of one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. See? The way in was the old covenant, but what holds it up and supports it, what it's built on, what it's built on is Jesus Christ, is the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. The angel has a measuring rod and he measures it out. And if you read the original Greek, uh, this is 12,000 of this and 12,000 of that, just as long as it is wide as it is high, heaven is 
in the book of Revelation is a cube. And it's 12,000 cubits this way and 12,000 cubits that way. It is a multiple of the perfect complete number of 12. 12 tribes, 12 apostles times 1,000 times an immeasurable amount. His measuring rod is going to get really tired measuring out 12,000 units in every direction. It isn't to say that the space in heaven is limited. Uh, I had a friend one time who said, well, if people don't have to stand on the floor, if they can be suspended in the air, 12,000 cubits this way, 12,000 cubits that way, 12,000 cubits the other way, then he he believed that there was room in heaven for about 40,000 people. Well, that's not what's at work here. <laughs> He's not trying to show us that space in heaven is limited, so you better get your ticket now. Makes a good sermon if you're the kind of person who wants to twist people's arms into coming to Christ. But that's not what it's about. It's complete. That's all this number serves to represent. It's entirely complete. It is entirely symmetrical. Everyone who belongs there can fit there. Everyone who belongs has a place. In fact, everyone who belongs would have a place with some space. <laughs> if there's 144,000 in the Old Covenant and 144,000 in the New Covenant, there's still plenty of room. If you understand, it's a spiritual place of perfection. And when you get there, you will be a spirit and you won't take up any space. Then there's all kinds of room. Then he describes the wall being made of jasper, probably diamonds, and the city of pure gold, light, clear glass. Well, again, I'm a rock guy, and pure gold is not like clear glass. Here, the description of the color outstrips the description of the color of the transparency, right? It's golden glass that the color is like pure gold, the transparency is is like it's not there. But it has a color, but it's totally transparent. John's language doesn't have the words he needs to describe what he's seeing. And so you get these funny descriptions all through the book of Revelation when he's describing heaven, where language gets outstripped by the vision. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And then he talks about the 12 foundation stones and the precious or semi-precious material out of which they're made, each as precious as the other. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate cut from a single pearl. That'd be some big oysters right there. Again, his... his human conceptual ability can't fathom how you would have a gate made of a single pearl that size, but that's what it looked like to him. That that iridescent, shiny white that reflects colors. The main square of the city was pure gold, like transparent crystal. There he goes again with the transparent gold thing, the crystalline gold, which doesn't really exist, but 
That's the best he could come up with. I didn't see a temple in the city. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He's talking about the church. We don't need a building because we find our focus not in a building, not in a priest, not in a holiest of holy place, not in an altar, not in a sacrificial system, but in God and the Lamb. I didn't see a temple because it didn't need a temple, because the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of sun or moon to illuminate it, because it's not a city, it's a church. It's the church of God, and its light comes from the inside, for the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By Him were all things made, and apart from Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life is the light of men. And the light shines and continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness has never been able to comprehend it. Boom. It's it's John the Apostle. And he's writing the same thing in just different words so that nobody who intercepts this letter will understand it. But anybody who's ever read his gospel, which if he's circulating this epistle to these people, they probably have heard his gospel, at least in part, at least the first few sentences, right? To know that in him was life and that life was the light of men. They don't need a sun or a moon because they have Christ, the life and the light of men. The nations will walk in the light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the light. The gates of the city will never close by day, and there is no night there. This is the verdict he said in his gospel. Light has come into the world, but men love the darkness more than the light because their deeds were evil. But now in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth are bringing their glory into the light. Everybody's coming to the light because... There's no dark, there's no wickedness to hide in the darkness with anymore. And there's no darkness to hide in anyway. The gates of the city will never close. He's right back to see, I have placed before you an open door that nobody can close. The gateway, the entry to the church is never closed. You know why? Because what were the gates? The gates were labeled with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The way in was the Old Covenant. When Christ gave his life on the cross, the Old Covenant was fulfilled. It wasn't ended. It was redeemed. It was purchased. God said, that Old Covenant that you've been trying to pay for with the blood of goats and sheep and whatever else, I'm going to pay the price for it once and for all so that it is paid in full. You don't have to pay a toll to get through the gate anymore. The way is paid and the gate is always open. That covenant has been fulfilled. The city gates 
never closed by day, and there isn't a night. They're always open. People may always now come into the kingdom of God and be welcomed. There's no entrance requirement. There's no toll to pay. There's no price to pay. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to get ready. Just come on in. It's open. People will bring the glory and honor of all the nations into the city, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. That is to say, no unclean person who does what is shameful or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Bingo. He ties it up with this bow of, this is about people. This is about souls. Okay. The city is the church. And anybody can enter, but you have to be a righteous person to come in. You have to be covered by the grace of Jesus Christ and have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You'll never earn it on your own. You're not that righteous. You'll never be perfect enough to come in. The people who come in are in Jesus Christ. They're they're saved, as we would say in 20th century vernacular. They're redeemed. The same cross that paid the price for the old covenant behind, you know, in arrears, paid the price at the end of the old covenant has already paid the price for the new covenant at the beginning. It was paid for in advance. God says that the resurrection, the Bible says that the resurrection of Christ was the first fruits of this covenant. The death of Jesus paid for the old covenant and provided for the payment for the new covenant up front. So you don't have to pay. You don't have to go to a cross. You don't have to have a crown of thorns pounded down on your head. You don't have to have nails driven through your hands and feet. The price was already paid up front. You simply must come and yield yourself to the one who paid that price for you and proclaim, believe in your heart and profess with your mouth that he's the Lord. Sounds simple. It's really not simple. And I don't ever want you to think that it's easy. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifelong sacrifice. It is a lifelong maturing process. It is the continual refinement in order to be a good citizen in heaven. It means every day losing something of this world. I once sat at the bedside of a guy who was dying and he said, I get it now, Pastor. I have lost everything. All my friends have died. My wife, the love of my life, died four years ago. Two of my three children are gone. One of my grandchildren has died. Pastor, this life is a process of losing everything until the only thing to give up is me. And when you get to this point where I am right now, and the alternative is to stay here and struggle on or to give myself up and go to heaven, I'm ready to give myself up. I'm ready to lose the last thing on this earth that ties me here, my life. I'm ready to give that away now. Give up and surrender to finally be with Jesus whom I followed for the last 60 years, but I didn't understand what this meant. And now I get it. I walked away from his hospital room that night 
praising God for that revelation. And I have never been afraid of the end of this life again. And every time I lose a job, a friend, a loved one, a pet, every single thing I lose, if I just misplace something and and lose something that I kind of liked, I understand it's just the process that everything in this world is temporary, everything. The stuff, the junk, the possessions, the house, the car, the job, the people on this earth, it's all transitory. I will have to eventually give it all up in order to get everything that waits for me in eternity. It's a weird kind of realization, but now I'm old enough that I start, I'm starting to get it. And, and it's starting to take on the glory that I always heard as a young person it was supposed to have. I get it now. It doesn't make it any less daunting, but it's a whole lot more attractive. Heaven is wide open, but nothing unclean can come in. Before I can go in, I have to ask Christ to forgive my sin. Then, though I'm still not clean, he'll call me clean. God will see me as clean because I am then in Christ Jesus. The old timers used to say hidden in Christ so that Christ walks in and I walk in with him. I become literally his righteousness because he literally became my sin. So then I am part of the new Jerusalem, of the people and the city and the person and the heaven of God.